My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? the granite-strewn coastlines where the North Atlantic meets North America, a tantalizing mystery lays hidden, buried under the moss, lichen, and brush. Evidence of ancient voyages across the Atlantic and a connection that leaves the mainstream baffled and clutching for dismissive explanations. Celtic lore speaks of a supernatural race, magicians and shapeshifters from the other world. Could these be the survivors of the lost civilization Atlantis? On today's podcast, Tom Higgins, world champion catch wrestler and researcher, joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss his journey connecting with his Irish heritage while attempting to understand the conundrum that any open-minded observer is left with when aiming to reconcile years of folklore and tradition as well as ample amounts of physical evidence against an academic consensus that for the most part fails to acknowledge this rich history that's been preserved within Irish culture. The Tuatha de Danin, connections to Egypt, India, Freemasons playing baseball, Cyclopses, and so much more all here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with world champion catch wrestler, the headhunter, Tom Higgins. The most profound one I had was on that mountain and like it was known as a holy mountain where druids and the pre-christian times would all go up this hill barefoot and like pray up there and there was like human remains so there was some sort of like old pagan rites at the top of the hill and then when Christianity became a thing there they would all hike up it barefoot and go up there and pray and do communion and do their thing and like when I went up there there was like a little altar for like people leaving little coins or medals or little crucifix or pictures of their dead relatives and stuff like that. And like I said, when I was up there, I just had a really intense, like almost like ancestor connecting moment. I was in the county that my family actually came from and I had just got done winning the world championships of this catch wrestling tournament right right out there in that area and like checked a lot of things off of what I'd always wanted to do. And man, on top of that mountain, I really did just feel the energy. When I was at these stone circles,
You are listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Sign up on Patreon or Substack today to get an ad-free experience and extended interviews with guests you love. Thank you for supporting the show by tuning in. Support the show for as low as $5 a month and get an ad-free experience. Either way, I love you. Thank you for being here and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I am live from my new studio, still working out the kinks, and today on the show I'm excited to have this gentleman with me. He reached out to me not too long ago, and it's been a little while since uh, we first made contact, but we finally were able to make this podcast happen, and I am so excited to have the headhunter Higgins on the show, Tom Welcome to the show, brother. And uh, yeah, I'm stoked to get into this conversation. But before we do, tell the folks a little bit about yourself and uh, yeah, who you are, what you do, and why this topic that we're going to be discussing today is important to you. For sure, man. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. I've listened to pretty much every episode you've put out. I'm a fan of it, so stoked to be on here talking. Anyone out there listening could find me on social media, on my Instagram or my YouTube channel, Headhunter Higgins. It's mostly martial arts and wrestling-based stuff, but I've, over the years, also posted as in some little bit of the truth or realms and the weird stuff. Sometimes I try to keep it separate, but they definitely overlap, and we're going to talk a little bit about that here today. And off-air, you were saying that you were kind of going down the same route of what I like to look into, which is a lot of the ancient Celts and the, the ancient Irish and some of the old megaliths and just kind of how the things around the world eerily look the same. Well, and that's the thing. And it, today from, you know, academia, the classroom point of view, they try to, in my opinion, throw people off of this simpler truth. And that's, you know, I mean, when you look at a lot of these things, it usually boils down to a simple explanation. At least that's what we hope. But with this conversation, surprisingly, there's a lot of pushback. And some scholars and researchers who have proposed theories about the Irish and the Celts being connected to other groups of people, you know, such as the the Indians in India, not uh, the Native Americans, but also uh, the Native Americans. So, yeah, right. there's all sorts of potentially controversial angles. But uh, you kind of, I would say, you're kind of, you're carrying the living culture of the Celts with what you do with catch wrestling, right? I mean, this is something that when I see it, I'm like, well, this is kind of like judo in a way, but it's something that's ingrained in the Irish culture, this this type of very specific martial art. Do you want to tell us about that as well? So, yeah, definitely. That is something I wanted to get into with you because I know you were a wrestler as well, so you can relate to all the... Oh, yeah. You know, self-development struggles and just like basically the spiritual side of wrestling. I used to have a video on my YouTube channel, but it got taken down for a copyright. 
It was titled, Wrestling is a Spiritual Ritual, Not a Sport. And I definitely want to redo that video because I do believe it. If After watching like sumo wrestling and all the stuff they do building up to it, they truly treat it like a ritual and like they think that the spirits are present with them there in the matches and like all the other cultures. It's much more like monk-like and meditative than the approach to wrestling we have over here, which is very like almost like jockey and sportish, which mm-hmm. I mean, it's still cool. And it's got like a, a Spartan like soldier like like work ethic for developing as a wrestler and character. But if you look around the world, it's definitely taken much more spiritually. And even in mythology, like Norse mythology, uh, the Gilgamesh story, the Bible, Jacob wrestling with God, wrestling is just very ancient. And like you were saying about the uh, the Irish tradition thing. So the Irish collar and elbow wrestling that I do, the catch wrestling, both of those were very popular styles of wrestling from Ireland, Scotland, the British Isles. And uh, those cultures died off as far as the wrestling went, like boxing and strongman old time type of stuff was always very popular there but the wrestling really kind of went away even if you watch like ufc or mma nowadays that area of the world is kind of like weak on the ground and it's a known thing and uh, it was always kind of a mission of mine to kind of help bring that back the uh irish collar and elbow was kick-started as a revival maybe like two years ago by this anthropologist who's also a grappler named Ruan McFadden and he did all the groundwork for reviving that ancient Irish wrestling style and me being of Irish ancestry I was always into the like Celts and Irish history and the Druids and just researching everything that I could when it came to those topics and just read every book absorb every podcast just like hyper obsessed on the Celts and like the Bronze Age warrior stuff I was super into all that being a wrestler and a martial artist my whole life I was also obviously obsessed with that. So once I found out that the two kind of like overlapped, it was just a no brainer for me. Right. Right. And I'm really resonating with, with so much of what you're saying. It seems like today wrestling, especially the martial arts community now, thanks to like the mainstream, you know, viewing through the UFC, it's kind of exposed on the world scale. Back And I think you and I are around the same age. Back when we were getting into wrestling and, and martial arts, UFC was around, but it was, at least for me, it was just kind of, it was new, right? Like, me being into UFC was kind of rare, you know, some of my friends were into it, but for the most part, people were still interested in like football, basketball, baseball, if they were sports fans, right? They didn't, martial artists weren't necessarily sports fans, but now... It's kind of become part and parcel with, you know, sports and gambling and, you know, ESPN. It's all mixed in. But when I was wrestling in that, maybe you can call it like exoteric environment, because you're right, wrestling is a very spiritual thing, but... And I don't know about your school, but my school, a public high school, like our coaches, they did a fantastic job, but they didn't incorporate much of like I would call it maybe like the spiritual underpinnings or the cultural aspects of wrestling that may connect with certain people and you know on the onset you might be thinking like well why would that be important to establish a connection on a spiritual basis with wrestling and I think it, it kind of comes through in your words, when you talk about your ancestry, because it's like, 
the spirits, the these ancestors that look down on us, that guide us, that protect us and offer us wisdom, we can engage with them, we can interact with them by participating in a common activity. You know, this wrestling tradition has gone down the line, the movements, the the you know the energy the emotion attached to it these are all in a sense ritualistic aspects and when you know you stand on a mat and you face your opponent and you have a set time and you have everybody you know whether you're in a gymnasium or a stadium or wherever you have all of the audience focusing their attention on this main event this one act single act that's going on it's extremely ritualistic i mean some of the energy I felt in wrestling matches, I mean, it was too much. Like, it was so much that I kind of had to turn towards my own, you know, form of spirituality to cope with it. Because, it, you know, there's a lot of pressure, especially, you know, when you're on a team in a wrestling setting, it adds that pressure up so much more. Because, you know, sure, you have competitions where you're kind of fending for yourself, and if you lose, it's on you, and but when you're going up against another team of wrestlers, your whole team is depending on you to win and they can't jump in and help you. It's not like basketball or football where your teammate might be able to, you know, assist you or, you know, whatever you call it wrestling. You're everybody's going to watch you fail if you're going to fail and everybody's going to watch you win if you're going to win. So it's extremely ritual and spiritual and yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited to, to just kind of, pick this apart because it is something that I, I think a lot of martial artists sense, but they don't necessarily have the framework to place these ideas, feelings, and emotions in when they're in it, you know? Yeah, definitely, man. And when it comes to, I guess, just like self-development or those types of thoughts, everyone likes to talk about ego and you oh, can't have ego or this or that. And I find that Wrestling is like a good blend of you kind of have to, if you want to be competitive and win, have a sort of ego, but there's no way to like stay egotistical when you're always being humbled. And a lot of the best minds of all time, like the great philosophers and like leaders of old, all highly valued wrestling, I think because it's one of the few areas too, where you can have your ideas about things or your opinions and like, you think you're right. And, oh, well, I think this move will work or I think I could kick this guy's ass. I think I can hold my own. And you figure out real quick, like your hypothesis <laughs> gets tested and you get your results immediately. Right. So, you can't fool yourself with it. hundred <laughs> percent. And if you think about some of the ritual aspects of it too, like you said, the ancestry connection, the, the fact that it's practiced in a circle almost all the time too. Like a lot of magic always talks about casting the circle first before you do your work. Right. You got you and your opponent. Well, and the uh, mat the mat is square, so you have the circle in the square too, which is a whole other yeah. component. That's what they call the ring too, the squared circle. And so where this topic kind of like with the Irish wrestling thing that I was doing, I really felt that was like a, a life purpose thing for me to, to help try and revive that and eventually get over to Ireland and teach my wrestling that I grew up with over here. And that's something I actually just did this past week is I visited Ireland. I did a tournament in England and I Man, there's so much to talk about there That's separately. Incredible. Maybe we'll get into that trip. But the Irish wrestling and diving down that hole is actually what made me go even deeper on some conspiracies. Like, I'd always been into, you know, conspiracies, if you will, or the truther movement. Like, I was very deep down the 
UFOs and reptilians and simulation stuff for a long time. Like I think many were, and it's, you know, you start to go down different trails and whatnot and uh, Freemasonry and the secret societies like were some of the more low hanging fruit that I would use to try and wake people up and tell my friends or family about and try to, you know, point out the obvious with the symbolism and this and that. And uh, when it came to the Irish collar and elbow, which was a, the old style wrestling, very popular in America, very popular in places where there was a lot of Irish people. Obviously, it came from Ireland. It was practiced in Australia, America, Canada. So like before there was UFC or there was WWE or anything, if there was a big spectacle like title match, it was usually done under the collar and elbow rules. Wow. And so, yeah, that was like the great big spectacle. So people would be meeting at those matchups to like amongst the crowd to like almost as like a cover for secret clandestine operations where they'd be using the like chaos of the crowd to kind of like plot their secret society's next moves and like meet up. And then in right. Ireland, obviously they were kind of under control of the English at varying times and the English tried to suppress the practice of this martial art. So it eventually did die out. Well, and there was just always some mystery associated. Yeah, go ahead. You make, you made such a great point there, brother with the, I mean, cause so nowadays, you know, it's readily available. You go on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and people will have like sports conspiracies or they'll have, conspiracies about how secret societies are manipulating society and they're doing it on a mass level and they're using sports and other you know really big you know events that attract a lot of attention to you know maybe flaunt the their power or you know put some sort of secret messaging in there that gets into people's subconscious i mean there's a whole you know litany of theories and speculation but you make such a great point, and I think this is something that I just want to point out because it's a, a device, a tactic, a, a skill that I've cultivated in researching, which is to go back in time and, and try to understand how something evolves, right? And when we look at sports today, it kind of, yeah, we have the Olympics, but for the most part, they're all kind of in their own lane, you know? But back in the day, nobody had television, nobody, you know, could see something like that from far away they'd have to go in person to do things and you make such a great point that these secret societies would put on these spectacles to get yes. everybody paying attention to one thing for a certain day while they go and do who knows what in town or wherever else right i mean this is such a i mean if you think if you boil it down to like a maybe even like a small town i wonder how often that kind of stuff goes on to this day in places where you know things move a little slower but let's kind of go back to square one real briefly tell tell me where did you grow up like did you grow up in a place where wrestling is like a part of the community i mean for me connecticut like wrestling there's definitely a wrestling culture here but it's not as big as like you know nebraska or iowa or even like pennsylvania a lot of the wrestlers that i learned from would drive up from pennsylvania to do these like courses we would you know me and a couple of the guys from the wrestling team who were really into it we would take like weeks during the summer and go to these wrestling camps and it was always these like dudes who 
clearly grew up on the farm, had like massive cauliflower ears sticking off the side of their head, like stop signs and, you know, really interesting characters. And, you know, Pennsylvania makes some real interesting people. So I enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, that was for me in Connecticut is wrestling wasn't really like respected as much as it was in other places. But where'd you grow up? So where I'm from ties into this a little bit too. I'm from Illinois. It's definitely big out here. The Midwest wrestling culture, like you said, the farmer thing, like that's all it really is out here for the most part outside of Chicago is like farm fields, corn fields. So definitely big time wrestling here. I'm I'm from a town called Oak Forest too, which is funny when you think about the Druid aspect is Oak Forest was some of the main, like main places where the Druids of the Celtic culture would conduct their rituals. So I always just found that funny when I would reflect on that, like being so into research and all this type of stuff. And then being from a place called Oak forest. And then have you ever heard of a place called bachelor's Grove cemetery? No, but I'm already in. Tell me about it. (laughs) All right. So that's, I kind of used to think it was just a local legend around here. It's in my town and it's a cemetery that's in the woods And it's got a lot of history. Like when I've looked into it, it's among some of the most like paranormal active places in the world. It usually makes like a top 10, top 10, 15, 15 list globally. And it's like I said, a cemetery in the woods. It, the lore around it is people have done like rituals and stuff there for a long time. And that there used to be Chicago mob activity. Like there's stories that Al Capone apparently used to throw bodies in the lagoon there and just all types of wild paranormal stories, like legendary ghosts that can be seen and the tombstones apparently move around. I've gone there a whole bunch having lived in the area and been interested in that type of stuff. And I've had some unexplainable experiences. I've caught an EVP there with friends. I've seen orbs. I've seen cryptid. What you could, I guess what you could say for lack of a better term was basically the dog man. Like it's a very active place. <laughs> Hold on. All right. We can't hear that and just skip by it. I've gotten comments before where people say, Mark, you know, how could you not follow up on that? What happened during this dog man encounter? Tell us about this. So this was at the bachelor's Grove cemetery where you saw it. Yep. So Like I said, I'd kind of been there a bunch of times just because it's in the area and I'd had my on and off bouts with being obsessed with the paranormal. So a friend of mine were there in the dead of winter. So even though it was pitch black, like snow on the ground everywhere, lightens everything up and you could see the landscape a little better. So it was probably like two or three in the morning and we're on this trail that leads to the cemetery in the woods. And like I said, it's all white. So you can see what's going on. Like you walk through the cemetery, then there's a path. You can go into the deep woods. We were walking along the frozen creek, just nothing special, just creepy, dark at night woods. So you're kind of just like creeped out vibe. We're smoking a little. You're, everything you hear is a little, oh, what was that? But at a point we did hear a, a faint but weird sounding growl in the distance. And we were trying to just like, oh, what was that? Like, that was weird, you know? And I don't know, maybe a half hour later or so as we we're making our way back, you have to walk through the cemetery again to get back. And him and I, we're probably like five, 10 feet apart. And we were at the one end of the cemetery about, I don't know, 50 yards away was like a black figure crouched. We could see it from behind, but you could see like it's standing on hind legs because you could see the little space between it and the snow. And it's like a big, broad, black mass, like kind of hunched over. And I guess it could have been someone in like a large trench coat, like, to have that type of a big profile, just like hunched over at the cemetery alone at like two, three in the morning. 
or we both saw this like clear, like wolf, like figure. But the thing is him and I both kind of made eye contact, didn't say a word, just started backing out slowly. And then once we hit the actual path out of the cemetery, just started sprinting. And the, the weirdest thing about that was obviously like, it's a creepy, scary thing, but I felt a, a true primal fear. Like, like you were prey or something. If we didn't get out of there, that was, that was terrifying, but it was very brief. We both know we saw something really weird, but like when you're telling that story and when you're trying to like rationalize it to yourself, you're like, did I really see that? Like, come on. Like that is nuts. No, and I wasn't even no. like familiar with the dog man at the time. That's why I thought it was that much more unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that syncs up with, you know, weirdly enough, other things I've been researching and just happen to be listening to. But one of the theories I heard recently about dogman sightings is that the dogman has a connection inherently to the dead and the underworld and graveyards obviously are a sort of in between of those, you know, the living and the dead. It's like a gateway area and there's some other folks who have seen very similar things to what you described. I don't know about in Bachelors Grove, but that would be interesting to follow up and see if there are other sightings from that area. But one sighting in the Midwest, a person got a very good look at this dog man and they said that it almost looked like it had a human body and a dog head. And they said the closest thing it, that they could think of was like pictures they've seen of Anubis. And obviously Anubis was the God of the dead. And when you look into you know, some of these stranger theories, and I tend to think they're more credible than the mainstream has, has lent to the, to these accounts, but there are accounts of Native American tribes that have very, we can call them Egyptian-esque characteristics, and there's, you know, stories of you know, potentially finding Egyptian tombs in the Grand Canyon, and all these other weird links between Egypt and the Americas, I mean, the most obvious one would be pyramid mounds, you know, but, but yeah, wow. I'm not someone who discounts that kind of thing, but let me ask you this. Is your, do you still like, are you still friends with that person who saw it as well? Like, has your relationship changed at all since that? Oh no, I still talk to him plenty. Yeah. He's he's one of the few people I can go to with that type of thing. And well, that's we good. both know that day yeah that's good that's good all right cool because one concern i i have when i hear stuff like that is in in other cases i've heard uh people report like not being able to talk about it with the person they witnessed it with uh, just out of fear or shock or even like in some cases people report like the person they witnessed this thing whatever it is with has a wiped memory so <laughs> it's cool that you guys are still buddies and and stay in contact because yeah maybe that was more of a meant to be for both of you kind of thing to just maybe have respect because obviously you know people who are sober listening to this would be like yeah you just got high man but i smoke weed every day and i've never seen any cryptid right. of, you know i've never seen any weird Maybe like three in the morning when I need to go to sleep, I'll see something weird out of the corner of my eye, but I've never had any, you know, visuals from cannabis. You know, people always talk about, oh, you're just high. No, I think if anything, cannabis like 
opens us up to this other realm and yeah i mean geez (laughs) who knows dude i definitely agree with you on the it opens it up to that a little bit because so i'm gonna attempt to connect a little bit of what we were talking about like you were saying the egypt and the americas and i'm still so if i wander or rant a little here feel free to try to reel me back in but i'm I'm with you let's go piece a couple loose ends together. So with the weed thing too, and Bachelor's Grove. So I was there one time and I was smoking with the girl I was dating and a friend of mine at the time while we were just kind of like hanging out in there. And we met this odd character. His name was Pete. He claimed to run the website or be like the unofficial groundskeeper of uh, Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. And he was telling us some weird ghost stories we were talking about. I remember one of the first things he said while we were smoking weed. And I might have like offered him a hit of the joint or something. He said, oh, that's like a form of time travel. And like he was hitting me with some hardcore like theories and rants, which is funny because when I told him about the dogman thing, he's like, oh, no, that's bullshit. As he proceeded to tell me like all types of other wild theories I'd never heard before. But one of his ones was that he thinks most paranormal activity is the form of time travel. And that like people seeing ghosts and stuff at Bachelor's Grove or other paranormal hotspots could just be like a replay in time and it's the area that is you know like paranormally charged and he says like people will be there and they'll hear voices like they'll hear like did you see that guy like or did did you hear that and he thinks that there's like some bleed through and that like people are seeing him as a ghost just as he's seeing them as a ghost and uh, one of his main reasons for saying that is so not even about a square mile away from this bachelor's grove woods is also a freemason lodge which i'm gonna get into that too because some of the main lore around this place why it's creepy is that like people would say and i've even seen the words druids use that there's like satanic rituals there and there's like cults and like druids and people would do rituals there and sacrifice animals at the bachelor's grove but uh about another half a mile away within the same vicinity is a very large radar tower like i don't know if you can picture like the big turning orange towers like a giant satellite dish on a tower i think it's like a really old air tower but it's been there for a long time, even the the local park nearby is called Tower Park okay. because it has a large spinning radar that's very visible. It's just like one of the biggest things in the city. And this guy was claiming that those type of towers are like conductors for paranormal hotspots that like anywhere there's something like that around, that there's some sort of like highly active paranormal site around there due to like the interference with the electromagnetic energy or stuff. And that kind of got me thinking like, with trees like blocking out your reception when you're in a really deep forest and like the missing 411 thing, the druids going to the oak forest all the time and like the big trees being cut down in Ireland on purpose. I'm pretty sure like a large tower like structure or like a big tree or sacred tree in the woods could have served as like a, a portal of some sort to the other world or to Dude. another dimension and like charged the area yeah. like a standing stone placed in that hot spot well and let me ask you this because i I don't know if i even mentioned this even before we started recording but one of the things that i wanted to talk with you about are the round towers all around ireland and many of them have been uh, destroyed but there's still some standing so i'm guessing by your what you just said you you have heard of them before so yeah 100 percent Wow. Okay. So I'm with you and I found the website bachelors-grove.com. So you must have talked to the guy who's keeping this running and that's cool. Right on the front, they have a, right on the front page, they have a ghost photo uh, that uh, it's allegedly a a ghost woman. Huh? 
Is it a girl sitting on a stone? That's like a legendary yeah. picture of that. Yeah, very spooky stuff. I mean, obviously photos. I've seen a lot of crazy photos. I don't know enough about photography to determine how someone could fake this or even what that looks like. But it is spooky. And I really like that idea that he expressed about the rift in time or like a portal, some sort of time travel effect that's going on that people can witness. Now, are you saying that he suggested that smoking weed could kind of like grease the wheels for that or make you more able to see something like that? So he really didn't elaborate, which was funny. He said word for word, oh, yeah, smoking weed is a form of time travel. I don't like uh, to do it. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. So this guy just likes time travel. Top probably talks about time travel a lot. Yeah, he had a unique take. That was the first time I really thought of the paranormal in that aspect. And the whole tower thing, like I said, it got me thinking about trees and like why the Druids considered the big oak trees and stuff so right. sacred and connect that with the fairy stories and the missing 411. No doubt. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've been to a couple cemeteries that I probably shouldn't have gone to. You know, I think I have a I'm not like dense enough to not be able to sense things, you know, but I'm not like super attuned either. But recently, right before it started getting chilly out, Tara and I went to a sacred grove of trees that is a part of the Mohegan tribe sort of sacred spaces. And it's definitely something that, you know, is one of many examples where you find similarities between the Native American and Irish, uh, Celtic rather, cultures. You know, this idea that trees are sacred and certain arrangements of trees like a grove I mean, Grove is in the name Bachelor's Grove. Yep. I've always had a, a certain feeling about any place called Grove. Obviously, people in our you know, community know about Bohemian Grove and the connotations associated with that. Even owls, too, have a certain special place in you know everything we're talking about, right down to their paranormal similarity. People often see owls in conjunction with aliens or bigfoot and even you know disappearances and things like that so yeah man i'm ready to hear more about bachelor's grove whether you know now or in the future but oh yeah i'm <laughs> sure there's someone out there who could give you a whole concise episode on bachelor's grove alone but the thing i definitely wanted to mention is the fact that so freemasonry was something i was always obviously try, like i said trying to dig at because it seems like it's one of the surface level and easy ways to see like how many people of influence were part of Freemasonry. And like when that club was right down the street from bachelor's Grove and then this is where things start to get like real synchronistic and wild, which caused me to, to take the deep dive even further. So have you, I'm sure known that baseball is actually designed as a Freemason ritual too. Yeah. I've looked into this. It's not something that's easily available, like information on it. At least I haven't found much, but my friend Mike Wan included that in some of his videos about the Susquehanna River, which also there's a whole rabbit hole there about the similarity between the Celtic and Algonquin languages. So oh, yeah. tell me about it. Yeah. Let's get into it. The baseball thing. So I come from a long line of very good baseball players. Oak Forest has had a bunch of really good baseball players 
And before I figured out the baseball was Masonic thing, literally like a week or two before. So I was working on that Irish collar and elbow wrestling thing. I was getting really into it, seeing what I could do. Like we have these nice Celtic jackets for it. I was like, I kind of want to design some pants to go with this. What would be some cool pants? Like I knew they used to wear like knee high pants in Ireland because it was so like boggy. I was like, that looks like a, like a old time wrestler boxer thing. I'll just get some baseball pants. I'll get some like Celtic network like patterns to stitch down the side. That'll be sweet. And then not even like a, a week later, I'd learn the baseball is like a Masonic ritual down to the uniform and everything. I was like, all right, well, that's <laughs> kind of fucked up. That's what we ended up with. But what? OK. And then the collar and elbow wrestling, you look up the historical practitioners and one of the most famous ones and a collar and elbow champion in the early colonies was George Washington. And I was like, no, dude, come on. So then I just I found that funny. I wanted to keep digging a little deeper. It also used to be referred to as a square hold wrestling. Like they called it collar and elbow because you both take the same grip. You both grab the collar, you both grab the elbow. But I guess then that forms a little square with your hands. So right. square wrestling was another name for it. And I was just like, this is just too weird. And I used to kind of speculate on were the Druids like good, were the Druids bad? Because you get all types of mixed info on the Druids and some Roman propaganda. They were like the main enemy of the the Roman Empire, the Gauls, the Galatians. Well, and like, that's such a huge part of this whole story, even down to like what we were talking about, you know, observing sports today. Like you even use the word Spartan, which is, you know, obviously, I think that's the Greek culture, but similar. I mean, Romans t yeah. pretty much took over that whole area and they subjugated the Celts all the way out to Ireland, which is where they kind of had a stronghold and exist to this day. That's why we have so much information about that culture. But, you know, the Celts were just one of, of many different cultures that were uh, wiped out by the Romans. And yeah, their wise people were these Druids who had this really interesting, um, some people have called it kind of hermetic mysticism, some people have, you know, connected it to possibly being like something from a much older culture like Atlantis. But what have you found about that? And also, I can't ignore your point about George Washington being a really great <laughs> collar and elbow wrestler. I mean, that does seem like something they would like say about politicians back then so that like sh tough guys would think that they're tough, too, you know. But hey, who right. knows? Maybe it's true. He was a soldier a general. <laughs> what I was thinking, though, and I was like, man, all my worlds are really colliding here. You got the Celtic culture. You got the uh, wrestling culture, you got the conspiracy and like the secret society things all combining. So I just started really going hard on the Masons. And that's when you uncover, like, like you said about the Atlantis and Ireland somewhat being connected and how Freemasonry, oh, they always say the Scottish right and the Scottish connection to Freemasonry. And you see Masonry has a lot of Egyptian connections. So you mentioned the round towers and the round, like the mounds that they have there. So those are mostly all older than the pyramids of Egypt, the ones in Ireland. The main one being Newgrange. It's like a, a big round mound. It's not like pyramid triangular, but a, it's like a big round stone hut. It's massive. And it lines up with the solstice, just kind of like the pyramids line up with certain constellations. So that on the solstice, it might be the summer or the winter, I'm not exactly sure. But the inside of this tomb, this very small door opening... The, sh the sun shines in from it, from outside, and it illuminates the whole inside for a solid, like, 10 minutes, 11 minutes. I don't remember the exact number, but then every other day of the year, no light shines in. So it was 
It's older than the pyramid by a couple thousand years. And it's like that astrologically advanced and aligned. There's a lot of sites all over Ireland that are, you know, aligned to the heavenly bodies and seem to be like almost like prototypes of what we have with Egypt and all the other sites around the world that are similar. And they say that Stonehenge was probably built by the Druids of Britain and Wales has more castles and megaliths per like square mile than anywhere. And they probably got erased and suppressed even worse than the attempts to, you know, wipe out Irish culture and reset their languages and confuse their narratives. Wales got completely wiped out, like all the Arthurian and right. the tales of Berlin and stuff like that. No one really even knows about that or yeah. the doll. And- all of it has been kind of resurfaced in the past 200 years as people have had the freedom, thanks to the scientific revolution, to go into all this stuff. But that's, you know, adding to my next point, which is like there are layers of oppression not only do you have the romans basically like killing celts and chasing them into ireland and out of the rest of the uk what is now the uk but you also have you know then later on as history progresses all the irish people subjugated to made to be roman catholic which is like a whole nother layer of it because yeah they have this older original culture and you have to wonder like this is something that i've always thought about like why is there this missionary force why are they trying to erase the older religions why are they trying to get rid of all of that and i think it's because we can't be controlled when we are in true connection true alignment with what it means to be a human being and those older religions have the knowledge that leads us there and Catholicism, I mean, even Christianity, I, I, you know, I have a lot of people that listen to the show that are Christians, but hey, I myself am not, although I do respect it, I think that's something that needs to be considered when we look and people, they'll say, oh, well, you know, that's the history, you know, we can't, you can't blame us modern people for what's gone on in the past, but there's still missionaries today that go out and try to, you know, convert tribal people, indigenous people all over the world. Oh, 100%. And you honestly nailed it too with trying to control the minds and the spirits of the people to make them easier to control. Because if they were in a more in tuned and spiritual place, then yeah, you can't be broken. You can't truly be, you know, controlled or manipulated. And I would like to piggyback off of that and say that I think that the Druids and the like, old, almost like what, when you would think of a Druid, like I said, there's some mixed opinions, like were they just some bloodthirsty human sacrifice, almost like some of the other barbaric like traditions going on back then. It wouldn't be very hard to believe. That's just was kind of commonplace back then. But I think we all have the stereotype in our head too, of like a Gandalf, like the bearded medicine man wizard who wouldn't hurt a fly and can like talk with animals and shit like that. And that's kind of the image that comes to mind for a, a lot. And there is some information that's kind of more so how they were and that they were like a spiritually enlightened and advanced like teacher class of people that was you know wiped out and chased out especially with the saint patrick narrative like so here's another twist on it too i believe that the celts or some of the people who came to ireland was originally from israel and it has to do with some of the lost tribes because the original well not original but the old inhabitants of Ireland and Spain 
used to be referred to as, well, the area was known as Hibernia, and it was also known as Iberia or the Iberian Peninsula, both Spain and Ireland. And the people from there would have been known as the Hiberu or the Iberu. So that's awfully close to Hebrew. And even the word Jew originally meant like the people of the yew tree. So to get back to like people that was worshiping trees, like early Judaism, the early people that referred to themselves as Jews held the yew tree sacred. And then you have the Iberu Hebrew people also obsessed with trees, like basing their knowledge and their magic and their language around trees. The earliest kings of Ireland too adopted the symbol of the harp, which is the symbol of King David from the Bible. There was a stone in Ireland that was stolen by the British royal family that they believed was the stone that Jacob from the Bible laid his head on when he had his vision of the heavens. And that's the stone that uh, the royal family is currently like used as their coronation stone under their throne. They even tore apart one of those Irish round hills, the British royal family in the early 1900s, looking for the Ark of the Covenant. So there's a lot of things connecting the Celts and the Irish back to like early Israelite and like putting the Druids in more of like a early Hebrew state, like kind of like the religion of Moses and like the, where they had like the serpent staff symbol. And there was talk of a lot of weird, like mysticism and magic and stuff like that. The Druids even referred to themselves as serpents. Then you got the St. Patrick narrative saying he got the serpents out of Ireland. And the fact that the Galatians are people talked about in the Bible as some of the first converts to Christianity who were a Celtic people right there. Even Jesus was from Galilee, which Gaul, Galatian, Gaelic, Galilean, I think you throw that in there and kind of like the Druidic Hermetic teachings of Jesus and his lost years. Where was he? Did he go to Britain? Like there was known trade routes from like Wales to Britain and yeah. trading for tin and stuff like that. So, wow. man, just a lot of connections right there that well, really bring more questions than answers, to be honest. Yeah. And everything you just said is is so interesting. I, this is one of the reasons why I want to become more literate in the biblical world, the biblical canon, just to understand all that more. But you mentioned the yew tree, and I love learning about nature, so I just went on the Wikipedia, and it turns out that the name Newry, Ireland, the, the place Newry City in Northern Ireland, this actually comes from the word, a word that means the grove of yew trees. Wow. Uh, and then York which is, a, you know, where York Freemasonry comes from, uh -huh. right? York is also another, it comes from a word that means yew tree, so, or place of yew trees. And what what's interesting about that whole connection is, on top of all that, the yew tree is extremely toxic. Like, it's not a, it's a poisonous tree, like, if and livestock often eat it and die, so... They probably would have been aware that this is a you know poisonous tree. So it's wonder. It's interesting why you know why this would be worshipped as opposed to like an orange tree or an apple tree. You know, right? Definitely interesting, isn't it? And to to circle back to the masonry, like you said, the York masonry or the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, and then so I'd always kind of figured like Druidry had a connection to masonry in that regard, and then when you consider the connection to the early Judaism and like Kabbalah mysticism and that we know is highly influential on Freemasonry. So then the connection becomes a little bit more clear than when you see that. And there's a lot linking 
Egypt with Scotland and Ireland as well, because in Ireland there's a grave, like a, a standing stone marking a spot called Scotia's grave. And Scotia was apparently an Egyptian princess, daughter of a pharaoh, I believe of Akhenaten, of, of, to, which is ironic too, because he was uh, thought of as like an Anunnaki one that a lot of the royals trace their bloodline to. But apparently his daughter went to Scotland with like a Scythian or something and they helped found Scotland and that's what's named after her, Scotia, the daughter of Akhenaten or King Tut, some notorious pharaoh. Wow. Then you got the, the pyramids. Well, it's like I was saying before, the, the mounds in Ireland seem to almost be like a prototype of the pyramids. So if there really was like a, a cultural go, like exchanged going back and forth between like the British Isles and Egypt or maybe the Celts when Atlantis fell, because I'm pretty sure Egypt's own lore, they traced their lineage back to Atlantis. So if Atlantis was out in the middle of the ocean, it sunk, it collapsed. The survivors would have probably landed in Ireland, the furthest right, west right. body, well, and, and then maybe from there they went and spread to Egypt. That's the that's kind of what we find. At least archaeologists who study Egypt saying they might not necessarily come to it from here, but they say that oh yeah, the pyramid building just kind of started out of nowhere. It seems at this certain time, and I really love the idea that maybe these mounds are a precursor to that because you're absolutely right. Like if this fallen ancient civilization that was clearly more advanced had a cataclysm they would have spread out in a you know a radius around their central location which would be the west coast of europe africa and then of course the coasts of south and north america where we have plenty of evidence of pyramids and mounds and this all is like such a i mean it's so fascinating to get into all this and we haven't even touched on the new england connection but to bring that up briefly a book I recently bought called The The Rediscovery of Lost America. Some of the first things they talk about are the uh, mounds, not in New England, but in Ohio, and how some of them are actually basically ancient f furnaces, like forges for creating iron and, you know, turning, you know, ores into usable metal. And they would, when these furnaces were finished, they would just leave them there uh, collapsed in their place. And they were basically mounts because you'd have to, you know, build this giant furnace in layers. And, you know, they had all these ancient ways of, of doing it. And this kind of goes against what anthropologists say about Native Americans being in the Stone Age, right? I mean, here we have evidence of mounds. We're told, oh, the Native Americans only used, you know, they were all mounds built by them and uh, they were for burial. Yet here we find evidence of iron being created, ancient forms of, of iron creation. And it's like, well, the Native Americans didn't have iron, or at least that's what we're told. Maybe they did, and that's being covered up. But we do know that the Vikings and the Celts knew how to do that kind of stuff. And I'm sure you've heard about the vitrified forts. Well, there's a vitrified fort near one of these mounds in Ohio uh, on Spruce Hill. So, yeah, this is, I mean, people have made all kinds of theories about the vitrified forts, everything from burning to ancient aliens shooting lasers at castles <laughs> and it turning the stone into like this crystal and 
you can go there today and the stone is burnt so much that it's like it's vitrified that's what they call it but yeah i mean we haven't even touched on the tuatha de denin yet and that seems to be a part of all this right i mean the whatever ancient civilization collapsed seems to have seeded all of these different cultures and i think the celtic culture is maybe an example of where we find more more evidence for this i don't know maybe that's just me over here speculating but what do you think so one thing about the tuatha de danan and the name would translate to tribe of danu and that again would even go back to some of those lost tribes like we said the lost tribe of dan or so the name for that would be right there but what you get with that is, yeah, like an advanced, like mythological, like elf-like or Anunnaki fallen angel or benevolent, malevolent, who knows, it's up for interpretation, but type of like precursor race that could have been the ones to build these things, to spread knowledge, to have been communicating with the ancient people. But with the sites around here and the sites all over, the pyramids that they find in China and definitely the lore of like Ireland and the story of giants and the finding of giant skeletons, which often have red hair. And that kind of just makes you wonder too, like what does that have to do with that Celtic connection and that area of the world that the red hair is like the highest gene and finding these giant skeletons among these mounds and the very similar architecture around the world, like the serpent mound in Ohio and like Machu Picchu and some of these other stone sites, like granted it's a long time ago, everyone's going to kind of end up, build in the same way when all you have to do from is rocks and stuff. But some of those sites, they just look awfully similar to like the ruins you would see in Ireland and stuff like that. And I would always speculate and people would be like, you're just biased. You're just thinking crazy. But the more I looked into it, even the site Machu Picchu, like built on a cliffside looking super like Celtic hill fortish, the local lore for there is that uh, a tall cloud, they call them the cloud people. I can't remember the actual name that they use, but the local Peruvian said, that a tall race of blonde hair and red haired people with blue eyes came and built those places on the top of the hills in like however many days in a couple of days. And they built all those stone sites. And uh, there's depictions there too, of like what looks exactly like Celtic art. Like after having seen it so many times, like there's a very distinct, just like simplistic, like just round basic face. And then with a big, long characteristic mustache and like the natives of Peru, they're kind of like that native American look where they don't really grow facial hair and it just looked like a clear foreign and clear Celtic art depiction on those. And that kind of confirmed to me like, okay, there really was something yeah. global about this. Well, that and they you're, don't you're, no. you're totally, you know, onto something. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Thor Heyerdahl, but he, I think maybe, I think he passed away like 10 or so years ago, but he went on this really famous scientific expedition called the Contiki expedition where he took a like a basically a raft and sailed it from South America to Australia and his one of his many theories was had to do with like the travel of people from South America and how people got here and he suggested it wasn't by land bridges it was these seafaring cultures that traveled and he also wrote about exactly what you just suggested, where these white, this white race of people came and built and taught these, 
you know, the inhabitants, we'll call them, all these different things. And Veracocha was one of these people. Uh, his He was called the white god. And yeah, there's a whole religion, you know. I mean, Veracocha is an important deity to the Inca. And I mean, yeah, this is... It's something that books have been written about and we're just kind of scratching the surface of it. And I definitely understand, you know, people's trepidation when you start hearing stuff about like, oh, well, actually white people went around the world and built everything. And it, you know, it definitely sounds like we're, you know, we could be bordering on some racist stuff. But I, I really like none of that bothers me because I know in my heart that I have no bigotry or racism towards anyone i'm just very curious about ancient cultures and this is what the evidence seems to point to and even you know that's not to say that like oh well white people are right for doing this or like this is what these cultures are saying like it's not like these this isn't evidence that white people are just coming up with like this is stuff that that is being recorded by all these different cultures and you know it just happens to be, you know, for the most part, white researchers writing about it. But the reason I even thought of that is because another culture that has similar stories are the Polynesians. They talk about New Zealand being inhabited by a group of white, red-haired giant people. Even, I think the Japanese have similar stories with the Ainu having red hair. So, yeah, there's all these things that are... You know, this evidence that points to a seafaring culture, probably from Northern Europe traveling around the world, or at least, you know, maybe that's just where they ended up. Maybe they weren't necessarily from Northern Europe because there is some connections to India, too, that are worth looking into. And people have written about how there's a connection between the Indian culture and the Celtic culture as well. So, yeah, I mean, fascinating have you looked into that? Have you heard of Thor Heyerdahl before? I'm sure I've probably come across his work before. I don't know if I can piece a face or like any information to him, but what you're saying, yeah, 100%. And I've speculated on that myself before too. And yeah, you know, you're going to, you're going to get that people just trying to either scapegoat or dismiss you from looking into anything. And I mean, I can only speak for myself. I'm just looking for the truth and fascinated and I'm fascinated by all cultures. And if I thought there was a cover up any other way for any culture being like, you know, covered up or they want to change the narrative, then I would want to get to the bottom of it as well. And yeah, what we keep seeing repeating is these giant red haired people and all throughout these different cultures that share similar things. And what you have is, yeah, some sort of like teacher class race of giant beings that was widespread at a point and maybe was that the Anunnaki was that the fallen angels I know you had Paul Stobbs on and I've been familiar with his work too about the the clown Nephilim always having the red hair and the super pale skin and just going back to that and the tales of the giants and yeah I don't know it's super interesting and it kind of yeah just leads to more speculation but there's a lot of at Highland we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes there's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. 
weird connections to say the least. Yeah, no, and there's something too about red hair and how this all connects through ancient cultures having different mythology and folklore about red-haired people. Muhammad is said to have red hair, although that is definitely a controversial subject. (laughs) Name about Genghis Khan too. The Genghis Khan was red hair, green-eyed, Tartarian in there, and that basically a lot of the old leaders were a lot of the pharaoh mummies had the, the red hair the myths of people with red hair being vampires or having no soul or their higher pain tolerance and whatever there is just a lot of weird lore attached to the red hair well and people have you know before us made all these connections i'll link to some of this in the description of the episode but there's also tons of connections between Druidry and the Eastern mysticisms, you know, India, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, these different so-called Dharmic religions are inherently connected to Druidry when you study like what the Druids believed. So, yeah, maybe there's like a, as you put it, like, and I think religions all over the world remember these kind of teachers, you know, and maybe the their likenesses fit this pattern and that indicates that, you know, these sites were created as well by this group of we'll call them gifted individuals. And it's weird because, you know, a lot of these places now, for the most part, you know, have gone I I think under the radar. There's different examples of megaliths that are you know on the everybody's top 10 and whatnot you know people are familiar with the pyramids they're familiar with stonehenge but when you look at the overwhelming number of megalithic sites just in like the arctic circle and maybe like between the arctic circle and the 40th parallel and how they all line up from you know, Canada to Russia, I mean, and everything in between on both sides. Like, it's all these stone structures. And I was talking to a guest named Topher Gardner, who's really into biochar and different forms of engineering. And one of the things that he was explaining to me is how in the north you have these diamagnetic soils whereas you know maybe towards the equator you have more of a paramagnetic soil i don't know how standard that is and if there's you know differentiations between geology and how you would differentiate it but i'm pretty sure places that have a lot of granite are diamagnetic and that for the most part is you know a lot of northern areas whether it's europe North America, Asia, they have a lot of granite and they have these diamagnetic sort of energy polarities. Just inherently the ground is diamagnetic. You know, I'm using very simplistic terms here, or at least trying to, because I'm not as literate in it as I should be. But yeah, no, it seems like all of these structures fit a pattern and like I said, like Stonehenge people is people are probably most familiar with that. And that seems to be like a calendar, but the standing stone itself has a 
energetic potential, right? Have you looked into this at all? Yeah, 100%. And that's kind of like the theories I was talking about earlier of like that guy was talking about that tower in the grove. And that got me thinking about like big trees and just like the groves and the potential portals and having visited some of these sites now, cause I literally just got back from Ireland and I tried to hit as many of these cool megalithic sites and stone circles and mounds and stuff that I could. And I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with earthing, like being barefoot on the ground and connecting with the earth and these sites. And there's 100% something to these sites. I climbed a holy mountain there. It was also so foggy and like misty that I, as I was climbing it and when I was at the top, I literally couldn't see the view. So I climbed this mountain and got no view of like rewarding look at it. But man, when I was up there, I could feel it. I'm, I'm telling you, I had a, yeah. a very profound energy of just knowing that you were on top of that mountain and feeling it. And yeah, the, the well, energy of the actual earth, like you were saying with the soil and stuff, I've never heard that in depth of a take on it, but Clearly, the people that were going around setting up these things around the earth had a deep knowledge of the earth and where to put these things and how to manipulate energy and just where to go with it. And to what ends did they actually use it? Who knows? Yeah. And I want to hear more about your trip. But what you just said kind of piqued another thought in my mind, which is like places around the equator tend to have pyramids, but they also tend to be places that are flatter, right? There there are exceptions, like there are mountain chains along the equator in some places, but for the most part, the equator is pretty flat, right? Like it's a flat sort of area where you find a lot of these pyramids. And I wonder if that has something to do with it, where they're creating essentially what could be like a mountain where there are no mountains and places where there are mountains there's enough of this energy to where they just kind of need to build something that focuses it. Whereas in, you know, these flatter paramagnetic areas, they need to like generate it more. And obviously water plays into that and the pyramids, we could spend a whole, you know, decade researching that. I'm hoping one day to get some of these like leading pyramid researcher guys on the show, but yeah, it's fascinating to think about the mounds and the pyramid connection. And, you know, I had a guest on Jeffrey Drum. He talks about how the pyramids might be some sort of chemical plant, which, you know, kind wow. of lines up with how some of these mounds are iron forges. I mean, that's kind of maybe a more materialist perspective on it, which I like to think that this is, there's a multi multiplicitous understanding of these structures they're spiritual as well they're not just like utilitarian but it is fascinating to think like they were generating you know doing these like industrial generative acts creating energy creating materials on a scale that we just can't even replicate today and then we want to you know fit them behind us in this scale of progress it's like so so silly and why I think so much of this world of research is so fascinating to people these days, you know, like everybody kind of agrees, like, no, like there's clearly something going on in ancient times that is worth looking into and is very advanced. Uh, What these things are is hard to know. Now on the round table or the round tower conversation, 
I was learning from this book, and I'll find the, the title of it and mention it in a second. Oh, it's called Ancient Mysteries, Modern Visions, The Magnetic Life of Agriculture. And he talks about how these round towers are basically like, they're essentially like a way of capturing the magnetic energy of an area, the elect- electromagnetic energy, and using it to to boost the potential or the potency of their seeds. So that's one one explanation for these structures. Actually, I think the other guy is, huh, I'm getting confused with my books here, but there's a couple books that I've found, and I'll link them in the show description. But any thoughts on what I just said, Tom? I'm sorry. You warned me about going down. <laughs> you were going to go down tangents. Here I am going down tangents. What you said about the pyramids on the, the plateaus, that honestly, yeah, I've never thought of that. That's probably what it was, to be honest. And I've heard theories that like time moves slower near a massive mountain and time moves slower near the pyramids or like near a massive object and something like that. So it seems like, yeah, if, the, if that was an area they were looking to set up a shop and they knew how to manipulate energy and harness energy of the earth, that it definitely would have served some sort of purpose like that. And as far as when I was in Ireland this past week. The most profound one I had was on that mountain. And like, it was known as a holy mountain where Druids and the pre-Christian times would all go up this hill barefoot and like pray up there. And there was like human remains. So there was some sort of like old pagan rites at the top of the hill. And then when Christianity became a thing there, they would all hike up it barefoot and go up there and pray and do communion and do their thing. And like, when I went up there, there was like a little altar for like people leaving little coins or medals or little crucifix or pictures of their dead relatives and stuff like that. And like I said, when I was up there, I just had a really intense, like almost like ancestor connecting moment. I was in the County that my family actually came from and I had just got done winning the world championships of this catch wrestling tournament right right out there in that area. And like checked a lot of things off of what I'd always wanted to do. And man, on top of that mountain, I really, did just feel that energy when I was at these stone circles, just I was in these sandals too. And like walking around barefoot on this moss, like that alone just is a nice feeling. But I just felt like charged up, dude. When I was there, I felt like if I was about to, and I did some little bit of exercising cause I was getting ready to go do this tournament. And in the week beforehand, I was just visiting all these cool sites, almost like I was on Skyrim or a video game or something, go hit all these little shrines on the map and get your level up. <laughs> this is what I felt like I was doing. And dude, it's something about it, like almost like an electrical charge to the area that I felt like I could have worked out all day long at these standing stones and in these stone circles and just felt so dialed in and charged up. And when I did go to have this tournament after like spending a week in Ireland, wandering in the woods and visiting these megaliths and stone circles and just being with my thoughts and I performed better than I ever have. And like, I had so many weird synchronistic experiences. The one I'll I'll tell you for sure that I think people will get a kick out of is I felt like this is some comic book shit. I was going up to this sacred mound. It was on the top of one of these steepest hills I've ever walked. And it was a challenge, like straight green hill, just almost straight vertical, get to the top. There's thousands of stones making this big mound with a entrance, but the entrance was blocked off by bars. You couldn't go in. It was like some sort of tomb and they didn't want it to collapse. And all around it is these smaller stone circles and like a little, like what I could best describe as like a stone bathtub. It looked like I was like, Oh, this was definitely some sort of like sacrifice 
altar or something. This is what it looked like, a little imprint to fit a person in there and have them bleed out. But it was definitely like some Druid site. And I heard some lady telling like, over telling some other bystanders something about the Druids building it because it was at the highest point of the land and stuff. And it had a sweet ass view. And there was actually magic mushrooms growing all over the top that people would like come and try to hike for because there's like sheep crap around and it grows perfectly in that environment. And as I was coming down from this hill, this guy was walking up the hill and he looked, I noticed him from the bottom. I was like, Oh, this guy looks brutal. Just big white beard all the way down to his belly. And like just these crazy blue eyes and big nose. He just looked super druid wizard, like Gandalf dude. And he's walking up the hill and this is the day before the tournament for me. And this guy goes to me in his crazy accent. He goes, now you are the man of all men among us. And I was like, holy shit, dude. I just got to the Druid's blessing right before this, like, this, <laughs> this site. And I said to him, I was like, I would say that to you, dude. You look like you're one of the guys who built this place with this giant ass beard. And then he just made some joke and walked off. And I was thinking about that the whole time leading up to that tournament. I was like, that was wild. Just, I felt like I really did travel back in time or something and get the Druid's blessing before I went and got the great result. Yeah, man, it was a fucking magical time there i felt like i lived a, a whole lifetime just being there and visiting all these sites and i was only there a couple of days that's incredible yeah and it's so great to hear you say that and i, I should tell the folks to go and check out your instagram because you are a champ like bro i checked out your instagram and it, yeah it's it, there's no it wasn't surprising to find out that you're a champion but but yeah the account that you just gave us of just feeling like rejuvenated near these sites that's something that people noticed in Ireland because for a long time or at least like in the 1800s when people had the sort of freedom to start contemplating this stuff they started to ask like hey like we don't really know what's up with these round towers and people started looking into them a guy wrote a book about it Henry O'Brien is his name and you could still find this book. I think it's actually free if you just search it, just search the PDF. But they noticed that people who lived near these round towers would live into their 90s and have very little health problems. Like, a, like the places where these round towers were, like people very rarely ever got sick unless they're about to pass away. And people lived into their, you know, 90s. And, you know, not that... Irish people aren't necessarily healthy, but it is a place where there's a, a famine, right? I mean, there has been, there have been historically events where, and I'm sure there's a conspiracy to that, right? Where the English probably screwed with them somehow. And I definitely want to get into that at some point. I know Michael Hoffman wrote a whole book about the enslavement of Irish people, but yeah, that is something that I think people don't necessarily give these sacred sites credit for, at least in America. You know, we talk a lot about mounds having these spooky sort of environmental factors, you know, atmosphere is sort of haunted almost. And I wonder if that's just because the culture is like clashing with the culture that built the the landscape you know literally like and in the case of ireland there's more of a harmonious relationship where there's still people who live and breathe that celtic culture and understand the sacred sites it's like you know maybe part of the reason why the u.s government took the native americans away from their ancestral land and put them on 
reservations where, you know, in many cases they didn't even, they had no ancestral connection to that place. Right. And that maybe demagnetized them as a people. Man, that right there too, that, that hit right on the head. Cause I would could just like, as I'm researching this type of stuff, see time and time again, like the Irish had their language wiped out twice, like old Irish and Oum, they had two separate languages that got literally wiped out of extinction. They basically have had two attempts to completely wipe them off the map. If you count like the, the Roman empire's basically a attempt of a genocide and the St. Patrick type of ordeal of trying to erase that culture. And then with the potato famine too, like deliberately trying to starve them and get them out of there and like a whole effort to make it seem like, no, nah, you guys were nothing but a bunch of drunks and slaves and you just, yeah, you just like to drink and fight each other and nothing else. It's not like you guys had a profound impact on spreading civilization after Atlantis or that you guys helped build these round towers and kept ancient knowledge alive. Now nah, you guys are just fucking drunks who couldn't read and that's all you ever were. <laughs> Kind of like a, exactly like you said about the Native Americans, get them drinking, get them, get all their haircuts, get them disconnected from everything that they know. And And isn't that the same formula? I mean, look at that with alcohol and like using alcohol to destabilize a culture. I mean, I definitely have seen it destabilize my own family in some ways, you know, in a minor way. Not everybody's still kind of good. Actually, no, I have an uncle that passed away due to alcoholism. So I shouldn't dismiss that or forget that. But yeah, I mean, I'm not a uh, full Irish, but there's Irish, there's Irish blood in me. My, my family, like the culture of my family isn't all that Irish. I, I have to admit that, but I do have a, a red beard and I wonder like, I how did that happen? Cause no, no one else in my family has like a red tinge to their hair, but I do. And, and obviously people know I'm very tall And that's like the easy joke people make all the time. I'm not bothered by it. Maybe I'm just, I seem like a poor sport, but I'm not bothered by it. People say I'm a Nephilim and I'm like, well, yeah, maybe I am part of this teacher race. I do have a podcast. (laughs) I just, I wouldn't want to identify with the negative, the Paul Staub Nephilim concept like that. (laughs) I'm not that, you know, that's where it gets a little dodgy. (laughs) Of course, I'm with you. I'm in the orange mustache club. And yeah, not exactly something you always want to be associated with if if everything that is speculated about it is true. But yeah, who knows? Maybe there was a lot of different teacher type of races and different races of giants and stuff going on back at, around then or before the flood narratives because there's all these different cultures that talked about floods and resets. And I'm sure there was all types of, you know, mixed races and everybody kind of inherited a little bit of DNA from whatever long lost ancestor. Well, and like, that's, I think the- that's something that, that is being pushed forth now that we have like much more advanced DNA technology and an understanding of DNA that's advanced. I was just learning something today from a book called who we are and how we got here by David rich or Reich. And he says that the Native Americans have more connection to Europeans than they do Asians. And I don't know, I mean, if that's all Native Americans or just maybe like the Native Americans on the East Coast, that would seem to make sense to me. But yeah, who knows? Maybe all the Native Americans have 
And it, he says that it's not that the Europeans went there a long time ago and became Native Americans. It's that we have a common ancestor, like the same group of people that created Europeans was also the same group that went over and created the Native or became the Native Americans. So, yeah, I mean, DNA is showing that there are all these connections inherently and uh, all these artifacts seem to prove that there's a some trading and an exchange of ideas and but really I'm really fascinated to hear more about your your experiences in Ireland are there any more stories that you have to share I mean being on uh, a mountain even though you don't have the view I would imagine that isolation I've been up on top of mountains during those conditions and the isolation the feeling of like it it has like a ethereal sense when it's all misty like that you know well yeah there's there was a couple of weird things and like i i said i i was kind of doing a lot i always wanted to go there this was my first time ever going there like going to ireland was always a huge goal of mine like i was working on the irish wrestling a whole bunch out here and so the catch wrestling is another old historical wrestling that i was into and i had planned a trip to go to ireland around the time of halloween because did you know uh, halloween is the old Samhain that comes from Celtic culture too. And it originated in Ireland and the whole like basis of belief around that was that on Halloween or Samhain as they called it, the veils between the two worlds were at their thinnest and like the spirit world and our world were like crossover. So like that was the idea of like making jack-o'-lanterns or wearing masks and having like festivities and stuff to distract or trick or scare away the spirits or like welcome your ancestors or, whatever it was, but that was the whole idea is that day. And like even other cultures, like November 1st, November 2nd, like all saints day of the dead, like everything about uh, that time of the year has to do with like spirits and ancestors and stuff like that. So I had already planned to go to Ireland for that reason, just of being there. I'd always wanted to visit. Then when I found out this tournament, the world championship was going on in England right around that time. So that's just a quick little flight. The West coast of England was where it was held. So I was like, all right, I'll be in Ireland. I'll do my thing. I'll connect. I'll be there for Halloween. I'll go do this tournament, maybe become a world champion in the process. But like, as it was building up, I was just feeling like how this was just really something I was meant to be doing. And as I got there, I went to these sites and I was just feeling very, you know, emotional about it. Like, wow, I'm actually here. Like just looking at the landscape, like something I always wanted to do, something I felt super connected to. And I told you about that experience with the Druid at the mountain. The other one I went and visited was a stone called the Kukulin stone. Have you ever heard of Kukulin? Yeah, I have. I, I think it connects to something I was listening to today. Mysterious Universe did a really great episode covering the Round Tower book I, I mentioned. So I was brushing up on, on that. I'll link that in the episode description. But I think they talked about that. But go on. Tell me about what happened so, there. Cullen was like, I guess like an Irish Achilles or like an Irish Hercules, right. just like the most badass warrior. And his, his dad was like semi-divine from the Tuatha Dé Danann. So he was just like the most legendary hero and warrior there, like basically like a one-man army. And when he eventually was basically dying, like he was taking on a whole army in this battle and they were giving him like one-on-one -on -one fights because you used to be able to invoke the right of single combat in ancient Ireland. And they would have to, up, they were fair enough to uphold that like, oh, no, he called for a single fight. So he was, like, fighting this army, apparently, one-on-one. -on -one. 
And eventually they got sick of it and they just started trying to like attack him from far away with like arrows and javelins and stuff. And he got wounded really bad. So he wandered over to this standing stone where he apparently tied himself up with a, like his belt so that he could stay upright and die on his two feet facing his enemies instead of like having a coward's death. He just wanted like the true warrior's death. And he eventually did die on that standing stone where he was like fighting people to the end. And that stone is apparently in this town, like a, about an hour north of Dublin, like on this farm property. And I went there and same thing. Like when I was there, I was just doing like little body weight exercise and I could just feel the energy of that place. And like, did a couple hundred squats, did some little workouts like faster and more efficient than I'd ever done and just getting super emotional while I'm there and going to these different sites and visiting. Them. I was I was kind of hoping, you know, like maybe I'll see a cryptid. Maybe I'll have some like sort of past life vision or something like super wild. And it wasn't really anything like that, but it was just like a, I guess for lack of a better term, like a soul cleansing journey. Like I just felt so peaceful and like we'd get like teary eyed just at these sites and like inspired to do this match and just very present and the landscape and just epic wonderland, dude. It was like a, a fantasy experience. The, the mountain thing was after I had already gone and done the tournament, went to go to this village West where I was staying with a friend that I knew. And she was just like, Oh, you should climb this mountain. It's like, uh, it's called Crow Patrick. It's like a really cool thing. And I was exhausted, mind you. I'd spent this whole time traveling. I went and did this tournament and won it and spent a day on a train. And I've never climbed a mountain in my life, but I was like, all right, yeah, fuck it, I'll climb it. Like, I knew about the barefoot pilgrimage and stuff. When I first started to do it, I got, like, a really weird, like, pressure headache in my ear. And I was kind of like, fuck this, what am I doing? Like, I've never climbed a mountain. I'm exhausted. I don't even know why I'm doing this. But I was like, no, you got to do it, dude. Like, this whole trip, like, you became a champion of the world. You're in Ireland. Like, think of the accomplishment. This is the holy mountain. You got to yeah. do it. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the band Sleep. That's like a, a stoner metal band that I really like. And they have an album called Holy Mountain and a song called Holy Mountain. I really like those. And I was just, yeah, Holy Mountain, man. Like, do it. Like, I was just thinking about that song. But I get to the top of this mountain. I instantly, I started crying, dude. I was like, on my walking stick, I just started I got hit with like the hardest emotions I've ever felt up there. Like I said, couldn't see anything. Just like you said, that desolate feeling on the mountaintop, like so misty in the wind whipping. I can't even fucking see anything, but I was in the County that my family apparently comes from. I'm on the top. I literally became champion of the world for the first time. I fulfilled the goal of teaching wrestling in Ireland, something I always wanted to do and like connect with my ancestors and dude, like the presence I felt up there, the, the emotions I felt just everything up there was nuts and my mom before i left she put a little prayer medal in my bag she was like nervous about me traveling or something that used to belong to my grandma who was super religious mm. so i took that medal and i felt super compelled to put it on that little prayer altar up there where in the village that her family came from so that made me feel really good like i was meant to do that too and yeah, yeah. that's awesome man oh what i was gonna say that that band that holy mountain album too the day I climbed that album too, like October 31st, November 31st too, the album Holy Mountain turned 30 and I'm 30. Like that album turned 30 the day I was on the mountain really? and coming down and it was Halloween too. So like the ancestor connection, like if they were really right about the thinning of the veils and the worlds being super close together, I felt like for sure my ancestors were there with me or they had been on that mountain before or something, dude. It was unlike anything I could describe. Dude, that's awesome. I'm really, I really loved visualizing that as you were telling the story. 
because there's just something about Ireland and the world traveling. I mean, you could have told me a story about traveling really anywhere and I would have enjoyed it because there's just something spiritual about that, especially going to a place where you have a, an inherent ancestral connection. That's kind of how I feel about Maine and Canada because that's where uh, my mother's parents are from. And I still haven't been to where they grew up, so that's something of a pilgrimage that I need to make at some point in time. But yeah, anytime I go north, uh, I, I'm kind of closer to to that spot and I, I definitely feel a sense of like but wow yeah, I, I forgot well I, I wanted to ask you you know given that you're uh, a guy out of Oak Forest Illinois I mean what did the people at this tournament think of you you know coming away with the win were, were there other Americans there were you like the only American there like how did that feel so out here I, I kind of have since high school never really had a coach. I've kind of just like bounced around and done my own thing. And like, I've had my issues with the jujitsu world, which is super political. And like, they care about belts and academy and lineage and whatever. So like, that's what kind of appealed to me about going and doing a little more wrestling again is like, it's not as uh cultish, if you will. And there was at this tournament, it was in England. Cause that's where this style of wrestling has like kept its tradition still is the, in Britain, like dating back its uh, lineage and there was a couple of Americans. There was a, a team of Americans. There was a big English team, obviously, because that's where it's from. Dudes from Scotland, Italy, Iran. Like, there was quite a few. But I was literally there by myself, too. And, like, my last week of training was literally wandering around those sites in Ireland and just, like, getting some walks in, getting some light cardio in. My training had already been done. But uh, when I did get the win, the organizers of the tournaments, they are like, oh, so, yeah, who do you train with? Who are you, Where are you from? And uh, they were all kind of shocked realize I'm kind of just like a Ronin nomad but it got me some messages from like I don't know if you know who Josh Barnett is he's like a legendary UFC veteran oh, of and course like, yeah one of the main people for catch wrestling yeah he sent me a message personally he was in the corner of one of the guys I faced and he was a, a feature bout for one of the matches too and he sent me a message after saying that he wants me to come do his tournament in California so that was a pretty epic moment because I fucking I looked up to Josh and like watched his instructionals and like yeah, man. followed him forever. So That's yeah, it was awesome. pretty sweet, man. Wow. Yeah. I really, I mean, you're kind of taking me back to my wrestling days, just talking about the tournament world. It's such an interesting world. I've never been like the alpha male macho man type of guy, but I feel like in wrestling, there's more of a, a camaraderie, uh, despite, that and you kind of touched on that with the whole ego situation because it is unlike other sports uh the like transformation that can occur on a personal level you know uh, a lot of people don't I, I think each sport has its own variation of that you know i don't want to i don't want to put other sports down but uh, there is a there is like a superiority with wrestling that wrestlers understand you know i remember seeing t-shirts that were like you know i don't play with balls i have balls like th those are the type of t-shirts we would see at wrestling tournaments i always like that <laughs> but yeah there is something just like again like whether it's spirituality ancestry like there's something very deep to wrestling and that's interesting to hear you had folks from Iran and Italy and all these other places there, you know, wrestling something that 
I remember when I was getting into martial arts, I got this, like, it's called, like, the Martial Arts Encyclopedia or maybe, like, the Martial Arts Atlas, something like that. It just basically told you, like, all these different martial arts styles and what countries they were from and, you know, this whole big book full of stuff. And it's interesting, you know, given what we've talked about, that wrestling is kind of in all of these places where the Irish are said to have some sort of ancient connection. Now, obviously, you know, some of this stuff is esoteric and, you know, these theories aren't quite acknowledged on an academic level, but the fact that wrestling and its various forms, like when I see catch wrestling specifically, it kind of reminds me of like gi judo, like the way guys throw each other around in, is it, Japan that does judo, I think. Yeah, yeah. J- Japanese martial art. And I learned some judo in my wrestler or martial arts training. And, you know, cause we would do basically like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then we would do boxing and whatnot. It was really, it was like an MMA school. You know, my, my teacher had a, had a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but he had participated in amateur kickboxing fights. And then we had a guy there who was a specifically stand-up teacher and he had trained in Muay Thai. So it was a lot of different styles. But I remember one class that I liked a lot was judo because it was it's just something that I was particularly... I wasn't great at it because I'm tall and skinny, but when I found the moves that were good for my body type, it definitely... You know, you can't really do gi moves in, you know, collegiate wrestling, you know, but there are some movements that are basically the same, you know, like I, the Oakley, Oakley stand-up was one of the worst fucking, I hated doing that, but, <laughs> you know, it was very similar to the judo moves or the judo throws that we would learn, like with uh, wrist control and the way you move your shoulders and I mean, obviously, it's a human body. There's only so many ways you can move it, but it is interesting to see these martial arts styles all over the world and how some of them are, are similar, and, and that matches up with what we're learning about like these ancient seafaring people who may have gone around and built all these stone sites that we find uh, across the world. Definitely, and like you said, it leaves its imprint all over, and it had to have had some sort of common origin and like when you think about it grappling and wrestling and combat almost is like it's a science and it's an art like it's a it's an expression and it's a like a practical art and human expression and the styles and your personality shines through in it and it's ultimately up to you and you do need that other partner though to like test yourself with and like form that bond with, even though you're battling each other and you're trying to beat each other, you're bringing out the best of each other. And yeah, it forms a camaraderie. And like you were saying, not to shit on other sports, but I think it was Socrates that said, uh, I, I swear upon Zeus outstanding runner cannot be the equal of an average wrestler. Basically just saying like, yeah, you can be a great runner, but like just to even wrestle, it takes balls and it's a true heroes activity, you know? Mm. Well, yeah, especially in those days in the conditions they were living in. Yeah, those guys were true uh, athletes. But, yeah, man, I, I think, you know, martial arts, wrestling, they have this spiritual component to it. But as far as, like, druidry goes, have you looked into, like, 
ways that you can practice like certain Celtic rituals like in the home or like things that you do around your house that like connect you with your cultural heritage, your tradition? So I definitely have explored that over the years and dabbled in the, you know, old ways, if you will, of it and learned everything I could. And I used to have a little like hut in the woods that I had built with some friends. And that was kind of like a sacred space to me for a while and put a lot of intention and, you know, belief into that. And it felt like a very sacred site of just being in nature. That was like a big part of what they believed and practiced was to be in nature and like be in that meditative state and like observe the world. And like the gods were basically present in nature at all times and stuff like that. And it's funny cause it all kind of did lead me back to in a way, like I still don't like Christianity and what it did to erase the old ways and the old religions where I really do believe like we touched upon, like people were at a very high spiritual state and understanding and connected to source and the God and whatever. And I think that uh, the Druids were some of the earliest and best examples of that. And that's kind of why they were a target to being taken out and uh, having those kind of ways suppressed. And I think that the secret societies are kind of just holding on to the knowledge of the Druids, like as the Druids and like the mystics from all these other cultures were kind of taken out. The people who knew about God and knew the nature of reality were intentionally killed wherever like the powers that be went like the Roman empire or the crusaders or whoever it was, they would take those knowledge like that they would destroy and hide from the, the common people and put it into practice in their own way or invert it or bad. As far as like certain occults, I had enough paranormal experience to not want to really dabble with certain things in the spiritual or <laughs> occult realm myself with just, yeah. you know, having like weird things happen around the house while I was well, into that type of stuff. And I was talking about it on an outro I was recording earlier today because I was responding to some comments I have on some of the recent episodes I've done. One on with Teresa, or Teresa on like dark Mormonism and then Paul Stobbs, who you mentioned, and his theories in the Nephilim. And I get a ton of people that listen to this show from all different walks of life and different perspectives. And I'm not really one of these like fundamentalists myself. I, and I, like we kind of touched on the Christian thing earlier, but I'll say it again. Like I grew up in a Roman Catholic setting and that kind of made me look to other places for spiritual information. Cause I just, I, it, whatever it was about, that church that I went to, it just didn't, it never like inspired me, you know, and I, I'm interested now to go into those realms, but you know, from a more of a, a student perspective. Um, and that's the same way I feel about all this. And I was talking about it on the outro where I said like, you know, the occult is like a strange dog tied up to a pole. Like you don't want to go over and pet it like, cause it will bite you. And that's what you have to learn about it. And you don't necessarily want to tame it either. Cause now you have a dog you got to take care of, you know? And that's not to say like you can't take the dog in and, and turn it into a good dog or whatever, but maybe that's where the analogy loses its meaning. But I think that's kind of how I treat it. Like it's like a strange dog that can't be your pet. You know, maybe a wolf is a better analogy. Like you want to pet it, it's cute, but it will bite you and it does want to kill you. You know, like the occult can be good 
to a certain extent, you know, but I think from afar is where it's best appreciated. You know, understand <laughs> having an understanding of how these things operate, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go out and, you know, become it or be like it, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think that what you said about the knowing part. Yeah. I like to study it. I like to know and I'm just naturally curious and I wonder about the mysteries and I mean, I believe in a God myself. I don't know exactly how I view it. I think that Jesus was probably some sort of Messiah savior figure, but it obviously was twisted quite a bit. And the narrative is hard to trust given the history. And I think that Druid Reeb does play into it in a little bit of a way that the first Christians was some of them with the Galatians, like I mentioned earlier, right. were some of the first people that were converted. And apparently the guy who pulled Jesus down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, like his uncle or like his family friend, was known to go back and forth from Wales trading tin. And when he was under persecution by like the Roman government as like an early follower of Christ, I guess he fled to Wales and Britain and Ireland because that's like the furthest you could get away from Rome and the Roman Empire at the time. And that he apparently started the first church ever out there in Wales. So like the Celtic people would have been the first ones to take on a, a form of Christianity and it would have been mixed with their Druidry at the time and like their Gnosticism and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of why the whole St. Patrick narrative and like the beating down of the Welsh culture and stuff happened is because maybe the original church was not so like governmental and controlling and like exoteric. And it was much more like spiritual based and nature based and source based and stuff like that. And that's kind of why the Druids were targeted. That's a little bit of a, a theory of my own, but like I said, this, this kind of stuff definitely had me change my perspective because I was very like volatile towards Catholicism and Christianity for wiping out uh, the Druidry type of stuff. But then when you get the mixed signals, like my nickname too, the headhunters from the old Irish warriors taking off the heads of their enemies as a <laughs> sacrifice and like the stories of the Druids conducting human sacrifice and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe not the best things, the, becoming Christianized and stopping that type of stuff wouldn't exactly be a bad thing. And <laughs> well, yeah. take I, the good and not with the bad. <laughs> yeah. You're it's, I think the headhunter is a lot cooler of a nickname than the stake burner because the Christians were burning <laughs> people at the stake True. and True. that's equally brutal. So yeah, we should point that out, but I agree with you. I think, yeah, we can't. And again, like we can't look at the past and, and, and put our morals today on it because it was a different time. And, uh, I think we need to understand things from a historical perspective, but, uh, but Tom, this has been so good, man. We've been talking for two, two hours and, and 15 minutes. I would love to have you back on the show. Maybe even we can get some other folks involved and do a round table on one of these topics that we touched on today, like the stone structures or the Druids or what, any number of topics that we touched on. Cause there's a couple people that have been on the show, Dan Donunaki from Rising from the Ashes, Andy Rouse from the Deep Share podcast. I know these guys are interested in these topics as well, and, and I'm sure there are others that aren't coming to mind. But, yeah, I'd love to have you back on the show. But before we go, do you have anything to plug for the audience aside from, you know, your Instagram? I don't know. Maybe I apologize if I'm forgetting, but... You don't have a podcast yet, right? At the moment, I don't, but I am uh, in the process of working one out with an old buddy I 
used to talk on his podcast. It was called the Reality Roundhouse. Okay. Years ago, we would talk about cryptids and stuff like that. I don't think we have a name just yet, but yeah, him and I are in the works to get that going. That'll be my conspiracy source for anyone who wants to talk or hear content on this type of stuff. Otherwise, yeah, my other social medias are largely based around the wrestling and martial arts stuff I do. I have a page of the promotion I run called Wrestling Wars, where we throw events and it's fun. The matches are real. They are hosted under different styles, but we add a little bit of the corny WWE uh, antics and shit talking. It's good fun. And then uh, Head Hunter Higgins on YouTube and Instagram will be where you'll find that. And then yeah, keep an eye out for the podcast and I, I would absolutely that. love to get back on the show with you and other guests and anything. This was a blast. Thank oh, you for, for having sure. me. Here. For sure. Yeah. I'd love to join you guys on your show. I'm glad I asked because yeah, it's definitely um, awesome to see you starting a podcast. I mean, you're, you're clearly a natural, not a, everyone can go two hours on a podcast, but, but yeah, no, that's awesome. And I should say, Alex Stein, shout out to him. He just won a boxing match that he did down in Florida with the Legion of Skanks podcast and the comedy festival they throw. They also do this thing called, normally they do this thing called Ellis Mania, but this year they had to do a different way called the Carnival of Combat. And Alex won this boxing match. It was so awesome. I watched it live. I was so proud of him, but yeah, it just made me think I, I want to go and participate in stuff like that. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it down to, to St. Pete, but I was able to watch it live. So if you're ever throwing one of those competitions out my way, please do let me know. I'd love to come check it out. Maybe even train a little bit and get involved because I've, I've got a background in wrestling. I'll give catch wrestling a shot. Man, I would love that. Let's go. Right on. Cool. So let's, yeah, let's stay in touch and do let me know when you have a, a, a name and an RSS feed and I will give it a shout out in a future episode. So people listening, stay tuned for that. And I'll put your links in the description. Folks can follow up with you and I'm sure you'll let everybody know when the podcast is out there. But that's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that. And congratulations on becoming world champion out internationally. I mean, that's a, a privilege. We've had, I don't think we've had many world champions on the podcast. So you're one of the first world champions we've had on the podcast. But yeah, right on, man. Thank you so much for being here. And anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Nope, that'll do it. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed the episode and I'll oh, be stoked yeah, to be on sure. again. Just thanks again, brother. No problem. Yeah, no, they will for sure. And and speaking of them, folks listening, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. In the extension of this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, Mystic Mark and his guest Tom Higgins discuss the two Atha Day Danon and their descendants' occult influences in American sports, the Freemasonic roots of baseball, and an unsettling truth you won't want to miss. Damn it, sign up on Patreon or Substack today to listen to the entire conversation. Go to MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com for more info. All right, and that was our episode with Tom Higgins. What a guy. So cool to have a world champion on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I don't know. 
my wrestling days, we were state champions, so uh, I don't really compare to a world champion, but I love wrestling. It made me who I am in many ways, and I'm very proud of my days as a wrestler. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe I'll get involved with some catch wrestling. Tom did invite me to come and check it out, so we'll see what happens there. But Tom is a great guy. Follow him up on Instagram and uh Look forward to that podcast that he's got in the works. I'll be sure to shout that out when it is available. Uh, of course, if you want to hear the entire episode of this podcast, sign up on Patreon. You get an ad-free experience. We also have the shows available on Substack. And uh, I've been very busy, folks, so I apologize if you've been waiting for me to uh, send you a sticker or I know in one case I need to upgrade someone to Substack and Patreon because when you sign up for the $8 tier, you get both. So just bear with me, you know, still kind of getting settled in here. I've only been in this place for less than a month, really, because we didn't move in until uh, halfway into October. So it hasn't really been a month. And of course, uh, I've got to walk everywhere uh, at the time being, you know, now the convenience of the DMV is, you know, sort of balanced with the uh, really long wait time. You got to wait two weeks instead of showing up early in the morning and waiting eight hours uh, and getting something done immediately, which is how it should be, uh, maybe aside from the eight hour wait. Uh, now you have to wait for two weeks for your appointment or sometimes longer. So, uh, yeah, two weeks of walking, not a bad punishment especially because I have so many amazing supporters here supporting me on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I couldn't do it without them. So sign up today and be one of our uh, early adopters. The first 250 supporters uh, will help us reach our goal. I know Patreon says we have something like 220 but apparently we have a bunch of free supporters, which really isn't, I mean, you're just kind of following my Patreon for no reason so i do appreciate people doing that maybe that's a sign that they're going to sign up at some point in the future which i hope you do that but uh yeah the the number of supporters is a little bit misleading on the patreon uh, i think it's closer to 190 so we're almost we're, we're getting there we're chugging along uh so shout out to the 40 or so people who have joined uh, over the past few months that I've really started, you know, pushing this message. So, yeah, unfortunately, folks who were barnacles freeloading, uh, you, you got to get ads now. And I'll I'll make it I'll make it up to you guys. I'll put out some, you know, full free episodes from time to time. But uh, until then, sign up on the Patreon, sign up on the Substack. And with that, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes. <laughs> he's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's... It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I got to say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about... It's, it's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. 
There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the brain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard, latch to the clank, clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child. And it takes a village to give it the inner style. So, if your family think you crazy, mm, and you ain't got a village, no, you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin'. Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. Feel like I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been some time. Sometimes depression got me flaking like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Blurred lines between reality and fiction And some politicians get dirtier than dishes But for a minute just forget about the government I'm looking at you and I and where the love went Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't And your family think you crazy Yeah And you ain't got a village I know you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin', yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.